Welcome to the e-commerce badassery podcast, the place for scrappy female entrepreneurs who want to learn actionable steps and strategies to grow the traffic, sales, and profit in your e-commerce business. I'm your host, Jessica Totillo Coster, a 20-year retail veteran who spent three years as the only employee of a seven-figure online store. That shit was crazy. I know exactly how it feels to do all the things, and I'm sharing everything I learned the hard way so you don't have to. I may have started this business by accident, but supporting badass bosses like you lights me the fuck up, and I am so stoked to see you grow. Are you ready, babe? Let's roll. Welcome back to the e-commerce badassery podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Totillo Coster. Today, we have a product-based business owner on the show, Christy Sumer, founder and CEO of Encircled, a Canadian-made line of versatile, sustainably-made clothing that helps women streamline their wardrobe. Inspired by her love of travel and dislike of checking a bag, Christy started Encircled in 2012 with a sewing machine she found on Craigslist, and she created her first product, the Chrysalis Cardi, on the kitchen floor of her condo. In today's episode, hear Christy's story of how she went from launching a clothing brand with no fashion experience to building a seven-figure business that was named a certified B Corporation in 2018. Christy is committed to meeting high ethical and sustainable standards in all aspects of the business, from using fabrics that honor the environment to providing good working conditions and fair wages for her sewers. And today, she's giving us the lowdown on what it really takes to launch a fashion brand knowing when it's the right time to invest in inventory, and the two things that were the true game changers in her business, content marketing and showing her face. No matter what level of business you're at right now, you're sure to pick up nuggets from my fellow data-loving friend, Christy Sumer. Here we go. Welcome to the show, Christy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's so happy to chat with you again. Oh, I love chatting with you. So we're not going to nerd out on email as much today, but I'm still super excited for today's conversation. And I did, of course, already tell your story in the intro, but I'd love to hear from you. When was the moment you decided, sure, I'm going to do this crazy thing and become an entrepreneur? For me, it all started with a product idea. So the business really grew out of this desire to travel lighter and travel more stylishly and comfortably. I used to be a management consultant in my previous career, which basically means you travel from client site, usually by plane on a weekly basis. So you basically live out of an airport and you want to have a carry on bag only because you don't want to waste time checking a bag or waiting in line and all that good stuff. So um, I was really inspired by my travels to create our first product, the Chrysalis Cardi, which is this crazy wild eight in one garment that transforms from a tunic to a one shoulder gown to a cardigan to a circle scarf. And that one product idea, I just got really obsessed with it. And from that grew out the whole business. And really, that was my motivation. I just wanted to start designing really cool products that I could make sustainably and ethically, and that would make a big impact in a woman's wardrobe. Let me ask you first about the sustainable part. Like, was that always a thing for you even before you started this business? Yeah. Well, before I started the business, I've definitely always had an interest in sustainability on a personal level. I think, 
you know, as a kid growing up, I was a vegetarian. I always tell the story about how I was in like the recycled paper club at high school where you sort all the recycling. (laughs) That's a real nerd out moment. I was also an athlete and stuff like that. But I had this like real interest in animals, the environment, all this kind of stuff. So I think I've always had that love of being outside and appreciating traveling and the planet. And I hadn't really had the opportunity in my career up to that point to really be involved with a brand that was making a positive impact. So I knew that when I started Encircled, I wanted that to be the core of our values. And I wanted to use fabrics and materials that were good for the planet and set up our business model in a way that we would limit our carbon footprint and reinvigorate local manufacturing at the same time. That's amazing. And just for everyone listening, like this is how you take your core values and transform them into your business, right? And infuse them into your business. Like it doesn't have to be separate. You can create a business that's still very, very you. So I think that's just super, super cool. And in terms of the actual design, right, of that first product, because it's this crazy convertible thing, I mean, how did you even like figure that out? (laughs) Yeah. So for your listeners, my background is not in fashion. I have an MBA and a finance degree and I have very little sewing skills. My mom is like an artist and she was a very talented seamstress. Actually, she used to make my clothing when I was a kid, but I had zero interest in that. And she tried to teach me sewing a bunch of times. And just like when a parent tries to teach a child, you know, it's a very frustrating process So I basically tuned out of that as a career. I thought, you know, I can't be in fashion because I can't draw and I can't sew. And at the time growing up, like that was kind of the thing. You gravitated towards the career in which you had the most talent. Now it's very different because you can definitely hire people very easily to kind of fill those gaps and still pursue your passion. So I think I had an interest in fashion, but I didn't really obviously know what I was doing. So it took a lot of up-leveling of skills to get there. One of the first things I did was I connected with an incubator in Toronto that had a lot of resources for the fashion industry because I simply wanted to learn how the industry worked. And basically from like, what stages do you need to go through to make a product? I bought a very boring book that I always highly recommend to any sort of entrepreneur who wants to get involved in hard goods or soft goods manufacturing called The Sewn Product Guide for Entrepreneurs. It is like the most boring read. I don't even know if it's in print anymore, but you can definitely buy it used on Amazon or something like that. And that book will walk you through the exact steps to make a product. And then it was just a matter of finding the right people to involve in the process and hiring, you know, a pattern maker and finding a manufacturer, which is arguably the most challenging part of the process. So it was just little by little, but it did take me probably from ideation to launch about nine months to perfect the design, prototype it, get it made, find the right fabric, all that good stuff. That's so amazing how you just knew you wanted to do this thing. You didn't know what you were doing, (laughs) but you figured it out anyway. And I imagine that you would say getting into the incubator, being around the right people, hiring the right people, that's really what changed the game. Like you have to be willing to make that investment in time, money, learning if you really want to do it. Absolutely. I would say now there's like probably courses online with like how to start you know, a fashion brand or something like that, which would have been really helpful (laughs) back then. But the online course and education space back in 2012 was nowhere near what it is today. And the fashion industry in particular, from a product-based business standpoint, is one of the most secretive industries out there. 
and people do not want to share their resources. Manufacturers, many of them don't have websites. So it's definitely one of those industries where you have to spend that time and really network and get to know people. One big tip is like, if you do have other people or know other people in the industry, asking them for referrals to manufacturers or fabric suppliers or pattern makers is often the best way to go. We found one of our best manufacturers who we've been working with since the beginning, just through, I was at a networking event and a woman mentioned she's making these different kind of leggings. She's trying to make an alternative, I guess, to tights. And she's like, yeah, my manufacturer is blah, 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 blah. And they're over down in Leslieville. And I'm like, oh, great. And she's like, here's their number. And they became like a long-term manufacturer for us. So, you know, it often just takes a lot of grit and perseverance. As you know, starting your own business, you kind of just have to be a little bit resilient in that initial process because it is quite difficult. And a lot of people I find quit at that moment, but really the success is in keep going and learning and making those mistakes and learning from them and keep pursuing your dream. Amen. Because it's when it starts to get really hard is when you're so close. I feel like it's like, if you can just push through that really hard moment, that's when on the other side is the success or the beginning of the success that you're looking for. So thank you for saying that. And you know, you started this business probably with not a lot of capital. You know, I kind of heard you talk about this on your podcast too, in the beginning when you were like creating your own crappy graphics and all of that stuff. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that story. Yeah. So I started Encircled with about $20,000 in savings And to some people that may seem like a lot of money, but it's actually not that much money when you're trying to build a website, get inventory made, get products made, because pretty much every fabric, like if you're doing a sample from end to end of a product, let's say we want to make a t-shirt or something like that, and you're going to make it from scratch, that's going to cost you somewhere between a thousand to three thousand dollars per sample for the pattern, the technical design, the sampling, all that kind of stuff. And that's before you're even able to sell it. So you have to have some capital, obviously, for the prototyping stage of your product. So a lot of that money, it came from selling my car. I sold my SUV and I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna take this money. I'm gonna rent smart cars, you know, like on a auto sharing kind of program. And I'm just gonna see how far I can get with this money. And I was actually able to get pretty far. I would say the initial investment went mainly towards like product development, setting up the website. I initially launched and hired a PR firm for three months. And then from there, I was able to create a business model that kind of self-funded itself from the get-go. So I was able to get away with having to put very little of my money into the actual business, I would say, overall, uh, because we started to utilize a model, like a pre-order model, almost like a Kickstarter model fairly early on where I would run production and I would be pre-selling the product and then we would be buying fabric, ideally on terms, and then making the product and then delivering it just as I'm getting paid. So it was almost like just-in-time manufacturing. And that's a model that we still use today, actually, because with product-based businesses, as you know, it's super inventory intensive and a lot of businesses just can't even supply the demand for their product. So when you're just starting up, it's really important to get creative with ways to fund your cash flow. Yeah, I love a good pre-order model. It lets you qualify your product too. So if you have, you know, five items that you are trying to pre-sell and people are not biting on one of them, maybe that's something you just end up dropping from the line because your customers have already told you they don't want it. You can save your money and not produce it at all. So I love that strategy. 
And you mentioned that in the beginning, you hired a PR firm. So we all know that PR is generally not cheap. So (laughs) what made you say, okay, yeah, I'm going to invest my money into this? Oh my gosh, that is such a good question. And this will just speak to the fact that the way you do marketing has changed a lot in the last like eight years. So my background, when I did do more of the marketing side of things, I worked in consumer packaged goods. So I wasn't really doing digital marketing. I was doing brand kind of marketing and print and PR and TV. So I didn't really have a good grasp, I would say, on the tools required for small businesses. So the most accessible marketing tool to me seemed like PR because I was like, well, they'll just get the word out there. You know, papers will pick it up, you know, news media, and then I'll just get all these sales. It'll be amazing. Um, (laughs) But you are absolutely correct. It is very expensive. The other thing is when you only have one product, uh, they start to run out of stories to tell about your brand and how to pitch your product. Because once you're in like, 10 or 12 publications and you only have one product, there's not very much you can do because it's not interesting to the editors anymore. So that kind of ran its course, I would say, in the first three months. And once I had stopped working with the PR firm and I realized basically I had no digital marketing plan, I had to really start from scratch. I tell the story often on my podcast about how you know, in March 2013, so that's about a few months, maybe like just as my PR contract was up, I did $128 in that month. I sold one product to a friend. So that speaks to the fact that I had no plan. I had no idea what I was doing. So at the time, I took a course that was really popular about content marketing and digital marketing. And that sparked my interest in email because she was teaching a lot of the basic principles of content marketing and email marketing. And I was like, you know what? I got to get a list. I got to start engaging with people. I got to start delivering value-added content about how to travel lighter and packing lists and all this kind of stuff. And that really turned the business around quite dramatically, I would say, just having a plan in place. Because at the end of the day, like we had a PR firm last year, but we now do all of our PR in-house. Um, But that kind of strategy is really reserved for like higher level businesses, for sure, just because of the pure cost of the retainer of PR and the fact that it is so long lead usually. But now there's other tools like Facebook ads and stuff like that that brands can use to get up and running quickly. But at the time when I launched, unfortunately, Facebook ads weren't a thing. You know, we were just working with what we could. And over time, as you know, all those tactics kind of evolve and change quite a bit. But um, definitely looking back, I probably would not have followed that strategy. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. We learn lessons along the way. I mean, even when, you know, I had my brick and mortar, I always get confused on the year. It's like 2008, 2009. But digital wasn't a thing. There was no Instagram. So I was doing local print and things like that. So it just evolves over time. So you started this, you kind of figuring things out as you go. You still had your day job, right? Which you eventually left and went full-time into the business. Um, You were kind of doing it all on your own. When did you know that it was time for you to like invest in more help and hire people on? Did you feel ready? Or did you just kind of jump in? I am definitely a more conservative entrepreneur. So um, it took me two years, full disclosure, to quit my full-time job. So I was running it primarily on weekends, but sometimes the odd evening, I would answer like customer service emails and stuff like that. But I was in a really 
successful point in my actual career. So it's not like I just left out of college and I was like, hey, I'm just going to leave this job. It doesn't really mean anything to me. I was actually in my perceivably dream job and I was making quite a good salary. I just didn't feel super aligned with, you know, my purpose and my values as we kind of touched on at the beginning. And I really wanted to create something from the ground up. You know, making that decision was really difficult. I quit my job in November 2014. But leading up to that, I actually tried to quit it two more times before that. And my company at the time talked me back into it because clearly I wasn't ready anyways. So um, it's really difficult to make that leap, I think, for a lot of people, especially if they're later in their career. But for me, it just became a question of like, am I holding the business back by not being able to be in it full time? And being honest with the answer to that, like you can hire like virtual assistants and stuff like that part time. But at the end of the day, if you're the founder and CEO, your brain, your strategy is what's going to drive like a lot of the initial growth in the business. So if you're not only part time in it, it can only go so far. So I started to realize that we we're growing, but I felt like I was throttling that growth by not being available enough. So I made that decision to leap. And once I made that decision to leap, I mean, the business started growing like triple high triple digits. And then that's when I knew I had to start expanding on it and get like an office space and start to hire and all those good things. But it was definitely a process. It wasn't like right away I did all these things. It took me a little bit of time, you know, six months after I quit my job, I decided to hire like a part-time person and then like kind of expanding her role as we started to grow. But I always tell people that like, I wish I started to hire sooner because I think Again, coming back to that bandwidth thing, like when you're starting up a product-based business, especially if you're self-fulfilling product, you can spend an inordinate amount of time, you know, on customer service and fulfilling orders and stocking inventory. And that's not really value-added activities. Whereas like if you're spending time writing like an extra email every week or doing more social media, that could really impact the growth of your business. So I always advise people to hire out those tasks that aren't necessarily income-producing fairly early on just so that you can grow faster. Yes. And I have a similar story. I mean, I've had other businesses before, but for e-commerce badassery, I was doing it as a side gig and I had this very demanding full-time job, right? Where I was like super important and people were always coming to me for things. It's not like I could just fly under the radar. I was too important. And I was being a scaredy cat because like I'm old, you know, like if I were in my 20s, like it wouldn't matter. I'd be like, yeah, okay, I'll figure it out. But I'm not like I'm old and I have responsibilities. And I was really hesitant about making the switch. But once I did that, as soon as I was in the business full time, I like tripled what I was doing in revenue just because like I was there, you know, my brain was there, like you were saying, the strategy, being able to show up and all that good stuff. So not that anyone should like leap completely without a net. I definitely had a cushion for sure because I'm also pretty conservative, especially financially. I'm like so afraid of being poor, you know, um, not being able to pay my rent and stuff like that. But really, when you do make that leap and you're just in a different headspace and you have so much more energy to give to the business as well. So I'm totally with you on that. One of the other things that you and I had talked about was our <laughs> mutual fear of like showing our face in our businesses and how we eventually like had to get over that. So when did you get over it? 
Yeah, that is such a good question. I forgot we talked about that. (laughs) We're going to have a full vulnerable moment here. So for me, because I was doing my encircles part-time initially, it was my side hustle. And in my business, similar to what you mentioned with your business at the time and your side hustle, you know, in my day job, I was also quote unquote, quite important. So I was in the press and doing PR all the time. So I didn't want my face seen in like two different places, because I knew it would be confusing. And it might also upset my employer. And I didn't want them to think that I wasn't respecting them. So I initially had that kind of battle. But also, I'm just not the kind of person who really loves to be in photos and videos. Like I've always been camera shy my entire life. I feel like I'm arguably one of the least photogenic people ever. One of the most pivotal moments actually in that was doing a branded photo shoot with this photographer. She's on Instagram at Anna with love. And she was like, you need to get new headshots. And at the time I was still working for PwC, who's a management consultancy. And so I was like, okay, let's do like a photo shoot, but I'll use the headshots for work. I'll use them for, um, at the time I was just starting my kind of coaching business and then also encircled. And that really broke down some barriers for me. Cause once I learned how to actually pose properly in photos, I realized that, you know, I'm not unphotogenic. I'm just <laughs> awkward. <laughs> So she taught me a lot about how to like frame your body and how to move properly. And I realized, you know what, like I left that photo shoot feeling like I am really beautiful and I am really photogenic. And that really turned it around for me confidence wise. And I felt like I was able after that to put myself out there even more. And I know that sounds really silly saying that, but like a lot of us have insecurities about how we look and no matter what shape, size, or age we are. And I think I was just not comfortable always. I don't like being the center of attention, I think generally. So that's been something I've had to get over because one of the most important things that I've learned running a business is that like, if I'm going to compete with Zara or H&M, one of the biggest point of differences other than the ethical and sustainability parts is my story and why I started the business and who's running this and really connecting emotionally with my customers. So to do that, you have to show your face. It can't just be this like product photo on our about page. So that really took a little bit of pushing myself out of my comfort zone, but it definitely paid off in the end. And now I'm super comfortable, obviously, on podcasts and video, and I've done live TV many times. So I've really come a long way, but yeah, it was definitely a journey. It for sure takes time to get there. And I always tell people, you know, put as much of yourself in the business as you're comfortable and then do a little bit more (laughs) because you are the thing that's different. And I struggle with this too. I actually, I have a photo shoot scheduled for later this month. And one of the things that I really love about this photographer that I'm going to work with is she specializes in women who are not comfortable in front of the camera. So I'm really excited. And like, we're going to do some stuff inside, but we're also going to be doing stuff on the street. And I'm going to feel like really dumb, like in the middle of Pasadena, California on the street, like taking photos. So We'll see how it all goes. But, you know, it's just one of those things. Sometimes, like I like to say, you just got to put on your big girl panties and do it. Yeah. If you think about all those people out there doing TikToks in the middle of the street, you'll probably feel a lot better about your photo shoot. (laughs) It probably will look a lot less ridiculous than that. But I always say, like, if you're comfortable being an entrepreneur, like you're doing something wrong, 
you should be feeling uncomfortable because it is a journey in every stage. If you're just like getting into that comfort zone with whatever you're doing in your business, you know, you're probably not pushing the envelope far enough. So we'll always have to be stretching and growing. And that's why we became entrepreneurs. So I know that shoot's going to go awesome for you. And I can't wait to see the pics. Ah, Thank you. And I love that. I mean, that is like Christy Sumer quote is that if you are comfortable as an entrepreneur, you are doing something wrong. Okay. So I want to switch gears a little bit here and talk about inventory because I heard you talk about this on your podcast, Brave and Boss. And I really wanted to hear your perspective because inventory is a struggle for most of the people I work with. And I come from the reseller space where I'm buying other people's products at wholesale and reselling it. And while I did, of course, have to book things six plus months in advance, I always had the opportunity to buy immediate goods, right? So it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to have nothing on my shelves. But when you're manufacturing your own product, especially when they're not inexpensive, right? Like you have a pretty decent price point. There's so much fear surrounding the idea of investing. And then because you're afraid to invest in the inventory, you end up selling out of things all the time. And selling out isn't always a bad thing because it adds that urgency. But I also think like if you have an evergreen product where you're just replenishing and selling the same thing over and over, being sold out is really just missing opportunity. So I'm going to stop rambling, but I'd love to hear this from your perspective. And how do you handle this in your own business? Yeah, that is such a good question. That will be probably the number one struggle of a lot of startup entrepreneurs in the product-based space in the first, I would say, three to four years, because predicting and forecasting in e-commerce is really difficult. One of the reasons we've already touched on a little bit is the prominence of digital advertising. And, you know, when you're dealing with mediums such as Facebook ads, where you can have an ad that picks up and then all of a sudden it's getting all this traction and some product in your collection or lineup blows up and you don't have the inventory to support it, you're essentially leaving money on the table. So that can be a bit of a challenge, but then obviously you don't want to invest like a million dollars in inventory when you're just getting started because you're not going to have the capital. So it's really about setting up for me And one of the things I think we have in common that we both love is systems and processes, which is not the like exciting answer to this for a lot of people, but it is really reasonable to start to set up a process to manage your months on hand and really start to do some forecasting around that. So looking at what you've sold year to date, looking at last year and trying to come up with some estimates and forecasts for what you're going to do. A lot of it's going to be guesswork at the beginning because you're not going to have the data, but If you know you're, for example, going to run some ads on a particular piece, maybe you want to up it 30% because last year you ran ads on this other piece and the growth was 20% and this one seems a bit better. You have to start making some of those assumptions and guesses. Otherwise, you are perpetually going to be out of stock. And that in itself is really difficult because if you have a very small assortment and you're always out of stock, you're never going to have cash coming in. You're going to have these huge gaps in cash flow, which if you have a team or a payroll can be very detrimental. So I think number one to me is getting the right forecasting tools in place and they don't have to be fancy. It could be just a Google sheet. The second thing I would say is like understanding and doing the analytics on your assortment to understand like that 80, 20 rule. So 
which products are really driving most of your sales. Because generally, something like 20% of our assortment is driving 80% of our sales. So making sure you're aware of what your core products are and making sure that you always have those in stock and have like whatever your lead time is. Let's say you have a six-month lead time, then you have at least six months on hand, if not more, if you can afford it, 10 months, let's say. And then maybe for the items that aren't as fast moving, you have a little bit less on hand. So figuring out that ideal balance and then periodically reviewing your assortment to make sure that you're discontinuing products that aren't performing. Because as a small business, you have to be super picky, I think, with what you do have and make sure it's all like holding a unique place in your assortment. And then the last thing I think would just be to get creative with your cash flow. So I took an angel investor in, I think it was 2015, Um, Not everybody goes that equity route, but you can also go um, get like a line of credit or there's a lot of debt financing options as well. So if you are feeling like, you know, you have this product and there's so much demand behind it, but you can't supply it because you're missing the cash, there's a lot of places that will fund that inventory for you so that you're not out of stock of it. Because at the end of the day, like a lot of these products are going to be gaining new new customers. And if you don't have something to offer them, they can never come back and shop again. So we want to make sure that that like cycle of inventory is always there and available. But it's going to happen. Like you're going to be out of stock for sure. We still get out of stock of products. You know, we launched a product in October and it sold out in 48 hours. (laughs) We were like, okay, we don't have any fabric till January. That's great. (laughs) So sometimes you just underestimate things and that's just the way it is. But like you mentioned before, which I think is also a really important point, Jessica, is that waitlist idea. So if you're able to somewhat gauge the demand before you even launch a product, like that's amazing. That's gold. So really just starting to think a bit more strategically about your inventory and how you manage it, I think is key for startups. Yeah, for sure. I love all of that. You know, I went to school for fashion merchandising and played with spreadsheets and did all that stuff. And yes, there are, you know, systems and formulas, but ultimately you just have to do the research, understand the data, and sometimes just take a little bit of a leap. And I love your point about really understanding your assortment because I think a lot of us can get emotionally attached to what we create. And if your customer tells you that they don't want your product because they haven't bought it, you know, sure, there are things you can do, right? Sometimes you have to move where it is on your website. I try and think of what I would do in a brick and mortar store, right? I would re-merchandise it. I would put it somewhere else. I'd put it on a mannequin, change out the outfit, something like that, put it in the window. So you have to play around with it a little bit, but there's going to be a point where you just have to say like, this is not working and just move it out, recoup as much as you possibly can, and then just really lean into what is actually driving your business. Totally. And like not all products are winners. Like we definitely launch products that aren't winners and you think it's going to be winner just because like you said, you fall in love with the idea and then you realize (laughs) you're the only one who was in love with that idea. So that happens actually quite often, you know, I mean, we've got some products in our collection and circled like our dressy sweatpants, which you now have, which have been in our collection for almost six years. And we did a redesign on them a couple years ago. But that's like magic to me to have a product that long in the fashion space. That is like an A plus plus product, but not all of them can be like that. So you have to be very intentional, I think, in your product development process. And especially if you are in a product like skincare or fashion or jewelry, you have to be really engaged with your customers to understanding what their needs are when you're actually starting out that development process. 
Yes, for sure. And just to talk about the encircled dressy sweatpants. So I just got mine a couple of days ago. Thank you again, Christy. I admittedly wore them for like three days in a row and was like, okay, I need to wash these now because they are so soft and comfortable. It's like being in PJs, but you can like put on a cute t-shirt and a ballet flat denim jacket and like go outside and be cute in public. I'm so happy you love them. That makes me happy. Yeah, they're so awesome. Okay, so this has been amazing. I've got some specific questions that I always ask everyone on the podcast because I'm a big believer in keeping it real with my audience. E-commerce is not all sunshine and rainbows, and there's a lot of bullshit on the internet about how it's super easy to have an e-com business. So I would love to know, what has been your biggest failure in your business so far? Ooh, <laughs> just one. <laughs> um, if I had to like sum it up, it would be not understanding why people buy. Sometimes I think we get carried away with our own ideas and we think that because we value something, our customers will value it the same way. But at the end of the day, why people buy is a very emotional connection and people have their own reasons. You know, early on, I was very connected to our product development, but as you scale, it becomes a little bit more difficult. So sometimes you lose that connection and that can be really difficult because you end up making products that don't sell and you assume that somebody's going to buy it because it is like sustainable or whatever is a great example. And consumers just aren't there yet. They still want like that idea of style and comfort. They don't want to sacrifice. So you really have to have these pieces that check all the boxes. And for us, that was like a really big learning, I would say in the last year, is that you can't just like go with like the most sustainable option, because at the end of the day, it has to perform like a regular product and deliver on all those other things. Otherwise, people aren't going to buy it. I had a similar experience when I had my brick and mortar. There was, I think it was like a line of t-shirts or something like that. And that was really their big message. And at the end of the day, like my customers didn't care. They just wanted it to be cute and they didn't want to spend the extra money that it cost to have that type of fabric and stuff. So in the end, I sold them because they were cute, right? So it was just really about understanding what was going to make them tick. So that's such a really good point. That doesn't mean it's not one of your values and you don't continue to lean into it but it may just change the way you market it and talk about it a little bit. And on a more positive note, what do you think has been your biggest success in your business so far? I would say surviving 2020 and growing last year, high double digit growth in a year that was like arguably started off really well. And then really we went into like a tailspin of triple digit decline in revenue and then being able to pivot really quickly and change our business model quite a bit in what we were making. And then whether the storm to grow in 2020, I think is probably my biggest success so far. That's amazing. So if you can give my audience one thing to take away from this episode, something that they should 100% go and implement in their business, what would that be? I want to say email marketing, but I feel like we were trying not to talk about that here. I know, but that's a big part of your business, a big part of your marketing plan, right? I would say content marketing, maybe more so than email marketing, even though email marketing is a pillar of content marketing. I would say like figuring out how to add value to your customers' lives beyond your brand. 
I think that's really important to creating a connection with your customers. For example, if you're a skincare brand, like can you do videos on how to do the perfect face mask, you know, the ideal nine step skincare routine, even if it doesn't involve sometimes all of your products, like creating that real value added content that you can create, push out on social channels or on emails and stuff like that. You know, anybody can write a product based business newsletter, maybe not super well, but people can do that. That's pretty straightforward. But when it comes to actually crafting value added content that would land either in your customer's inbox or in their feed, like that's what will separate really true brands with longevity from others. Yeah. And if you can just start with that pillar content, everything else, like you mentioned, the social media, the emails, become so much easier because now you actually have content to share there, right? We get so stuck on like, oh, I don't have anything to say. But if you had that content ahead of time, you would. And last thing. So if you knew then what you know now, is there anything you would do differently? Hmm, That is a really good question. I would have probably pursued more capital earlier on in the business. And I think back then when I was starting it, it wasn't really that popular to raise money. Now there's like, you can go on Twitter and there's like, everybody's an investor, you know, it was definitely not that landscape back then. You know, the ways you were getting money was like, if you knew somebody or you were on Shark Tank, but there wasn't really that like same pitch space, I would say, especially for product-based brands at the time. But I think I would have put more effort into joining some sort of like, you know, I was in the fashion incubator, but it wasn't really a true incubator accelerator program. I think I would have gone into something like that, that had an equity component, because I think setting up that structure and getting that mentorship is really key to early stage businesses. Because like, as I've talked about on this podcast, you do make a lot of mistakes. But if you have the right people in your corner, and I'm talking about somebody who's probably been in your shoes at some point, like advising you, whether you hire a coach or work with a mentor on a volunteer basis, whatever that looks like, or get a board of advisors, that can really accelerate your growth in your business and help you avoid making some of those critical mistakes that are integral in the startup phase. So I probably would have done that, I think. I don't even think I even knew it was an option, but hopefully somebody can learn from this and take that. Yeah. I think the short story there is you need support mentorship. You need to learn from someone who's done what you've done or is where you want to be. If you really kind of want to fast track that success and making mistakes is part of the journey. There's nothing wrong with making mistakes, but if someone can give you a shortcut, I mean, take it. Yeah, I would hire somebody right now to do certain things because I know that four hours on Google trying to figure something out, if I could hire somebody for an hour to tell me, like that's just such a better use of your time. So I think trying to think a little bit more strategically about that at the beginning would have been a big asset. Yeah, I think I got lucky when I started this business because it's not my first rodeo having a business. And because the education online is insane, right? The people that you can find and hire to help you. But, you know, I think back to some of those other businesses and man, did I waste a lot of time trying to figure things out on my own. (laughs) You know, I don't take any of that back because all of that taught me something and it's part of who I am and all that good stuff. I try never to have regrets. But yeah, I definitely would tell myself the same thing. 
This was so amazing, Christy. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you being so candid and vulnerable with me because I know I throw out some questions that (laughs) dig a little bit beyond the surface. I would love for you to tell my audience where they can find you. Where can they get these amazing dressy sweatpants? Um, Yeah, first of all, I'm such a big fan of your podcast. It's on my listen list because you're so tactical. So I love that. So I'm so happy to be on it. And yeah, if people want to connect with me to get the dressy sweatpants, you can go to our website. It's encircled.co. That's E-N-C-I-R-C-L-E-D.co. And we're at encircled underscore on Instagram. And you can check out my podcast at christysumer.com or at christysumer on Instagram. You know, I'm going to put all those links in the show notes as well. So you guys can go check it out. Definitely just go look at her stuff. Especially now, I think you probably won a little bit too, like in the whole work at home thing, because you can get on a Zoom call and look put together and feel like you're in pajamas. Yeah, we were lucky to be in a category that was growing, not party dresses for sure. (laughs) Thank you again. And you just have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you like what you heard, I'd be so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you're looking to surround yourself with more product entrepreneurs who totally get your life right now, get your booty on over to the e-commerce badassery Facebook group. Can't wait to see you there. Until next time, e-commerce friends, stay badass.